Peter Young is a venture partner at Papa's Capital and brings to his investment approach 35 years of experience in the biopharma sector. The former vice president and therapy head at Glaxo Welcome in the mid-1990s, Peter led the global introduction of combination HIV therapies that revolutionized HIV treatment, quintupled Glaxo's HIV sales, and maintained leadership on global treatment access. Peter has since served as CEO of two private startups, a vaccine company that raised over $80 million, and a specialty pharmaceutical company that he led to a successful exit. Peter, it's uh, great to see you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, Dwayne. Thanks for the invitation. Can you explain the role of a venture capital investor in biotech firms? We're here at the Bio Conference, obviously. How does VC play in the world of biotech? I think the answer to that involves a sense of the heterogeneity of this industry, partly of the heterogeneity of the technologies we get involved with, Um, medical technology, diagnostics, uh, uh, some of the uh, personalized medicine, biomarker kinds of related things, therapeutics, obviously. But across that range, you have varying degrees of complexity to get from an initial investment point to most investors are ultimately interested in getting their money back. Getting their money back in an exit, yes. Uh, Liquidity. (laughs) And so the the length of time and the amount of capital it takes and the complexity involved to uh, get from A to B is something that will conform to an equivalent heterogeneity in the venture capital community. It may be, if you're lucky, that you don't need venture capital. You can do it yourself. You can do it with uh, other sources of support. Venture capital is expensive capital because of the high risks that they uh, they incur and the corresponding rewards. So a firm like Pappas, we're a fairly conventional, dedicated life science firm, and we focus on therapeutics. That's uh, it's not because... You know, we like more risk rather than less. It's just the particular crank that we've learned to turn uh, over our respective careers. So in the therapeutic space, that can be a long timeline, uh, lots of complexity, regulatory and otherwise. When you say long, how long is your longest life cycle? When are you looking to get out? Well, our, our funds, uh, and this is fairly characteristic for venture, uh, is our 10-year funds. Sure. So that means we need to have made most of our investment commitments at the latest by year seven in the fund. And typically we're hoping, and this will become one of our investment uh, selection criteria for portfolio companies, that within three or at most five years of uh, an investment, that company can be hitting an inflection milestone, a value milestone that could potentially be an exit point. Now, that's the optimistic ideal. Sure. Uh, we've had you know investments where it runs longer than 10 years. But you have to have that sort of orientation. And on the other side, for a, you know, a, a startup company looking for funding, that may be overload. It may be more than they need in terms of uh, the input. We're very hands-on because of the associated complexities and challenges in, in the therapeutic space. We like new mechanism of action, but with you know, sufficiently far advanced development that you can have confidence in that mechanism of action 
with some animal proof of concept. Now, so a lot forth. of firms are very specific in looking at one therapeutic area. They'll only work on oncology. They'll only work on hematology. You're saying you're, you like heterogeneity. So you guys are going across a bunch of things. You like the indication. We're, you look for strength in an indication more than anything else. Well, we're therapy agnostic in a formal sense. But I think what tends to guide us, amongst other things, uh, is, is the capital burden mm-hmm. to get to that exit point. And so one of the things we've learned the hard way over the years is that you want to have enough dry powder uh, to deal with the things that don't go exactly according to plan. One of which might be, oh, you don't get to exit after phase two, and now you have to fund phase Phase three. three. And if you are in a primary care indication where you're going to need 10,000 patients in your phase three trials, that's very expensive. Not necessarily billions, but you know maybe 150 million, you know, a, a, a substantial amount. So we tend to gravitate towards those indications where, if we had to, we could do a phase three trial with our syndicate partners. Or another great example is rare disease, or some of these specialized cancers that fall into the rare disease category, where the capital efficiency is substantially greater because you don't need as, as big a trial. Now, according to research from Evaluate Pharma from February of 2017, when you say rare disease, orphan drugs now are currently growing at about 11% per year. Do you see that as because they don't have this sort of a capital intensive requirement? Is that part of the reason why? It's the identity Mm -hmm. of capital efficiency and regulatory efficiency. So because there's a, a shorter pathway frequently to the regulatory milestones and ultimately approval and registration, the capital efficiency is that much greater. To us, that is much more compelling than the seven years exclusivity. For us, our bias is, look, if you don't have original composition of matter patent coverage, that's really our preferred position. Sure. We don't like to settle for, well, we'll have seven years of exclusivity from the Orphan Drug Act. We'll take it, but our preference is uh, composition of matter. The, the much more powerful incentive for us is the uh, overall scope of development and the tractability of that development pathway. There's got to be a sweet spot here, though, because some of these orphan drugs are very thin. I mean, if we're looking at some of the sub-segments that have come in and say cystic fibrosis, you're talking a micro sub-segment of an already small indication. Yeah. So, I mean, even if you have a really great mechanism of action and you have a good delivery, there's going to be some time where the rubber has to hit the road and say, wow, we're only talking 100 patients a year. There's got to be something there. I we mean, can use the H word again, heterogeneity. <laughs> heterogeneity, yeah, of course. Uh, it's, uh, they're very eclectic. Obviously, there's, what, 7,000 rare diseases. Right, that we know now that we know now yeah along this axis is sort of the extreme personalized medicine scenario (laughs) where every patient gets their own uh, tailored disease I, i think just while we're on this rare disease theme you're right there's a complex of variables that will determine whether a rare disease is i use the word tractable right meaning can you actually advance it effectively through the development process is a natural history understood? Is uh, the target you're going after, is that mechanism well characterized? Are there relevant animal models? Is it one of these rare diseases where there are multiple impinging mutations or other factors that contribute to the, uh, to the disease itself? 
or is it you know the famous monogenic uh, right. rare disease? Are the patients currently being diagnosed, or do you have to go develop uh, an entire new platform? Yeah. When you guys are making the decision to go, no go, what is it that you're specifically looking for in the asset and the company? I mean, what is it that your particular triggers? What two or three things are the most important to make that decision that you're going to plunk down 50, 100 million dollars? So novel science that we can look at and say this is differentiated against uh, the standard of care. Oftentimes, the standard of care is really, in these rare disease instances, absent. We are looking for enough advanced data to give us confidence in the mechanism of action, hopefully in the form of a a credible animal model. We're looking for enough definition of the natural history in the patient population that we we think it's reasonable you can find these patients and enroll (laughs) them. Um, The agent you're bringing to, uh, to bear will have a meaningful clinical impact on the disease. So that's all on the scientific and technical side. What about the market side? So the, the yeah, that was the point you were originally uh, raising. So there is, I, you know, I, I think if it's really ultra rare, less than 100, less than 1,000, less than 5,000 patients on that spectrum, you're hoping that there might be an underlying platform element to the technology that would allow you to apply it to contiguous diseases, maybe that share a metabolic pathway or Secondary something. indications, things like that. Yeah. So right now, the European Union, as well as some members of the U.S. Congress, are looking at the orphan drug legislation, and they're considering changes to it. We've not identified market exclusivity as one of the key points. If that were to go away, would that change the way you look at an asset in any way, shape, or form? Are you still going to be looking at those core points that really are about indication effectiveness? It it might affect Pappas less, but I I want to uh, make an important point here. I said that the venture community is also heterogeneous. (laughs) The the wider investment community even more so. And I know there are people out there who are specifically interested in repurposed drugs. NCATS, Chris Murphy's agency, you know, has, has built a whole infrastructure around the database of, uh, of drugs that could be applied in other, in other settings. That's less appealing to Pappas, but I don't know that it means it's not a, you know, a feasible investment thesis for some parties. We're here at Bio, and we're participating tomorrow in a session focused on the International Pricing Initiative of the Trump administration, which would put in place an international reference price for Medicare Part B against a basket of other countries, including Portugal and Greece, et cetera. This proposal would leave things benchmarked internationally. It would remove sort of, quote unquote, the market. From an investment standpoint, what do you think would be the impact on your part of the value chain if part of this proposal or all of it were put in place? Bad. Bad. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, I I am impelled to elaborate. Sure, please. (laughs) So, I don't think that any discussion of therapeutic pricing, and we're really talking about therapeutics here, should start before it has had a quick review of the impact of innovative medicines on medical care in uh, the developed world world since the time I was a sales rep. I was a sales rep in 1981. In that time frame, where we only had a few small molecules, just think about the transformation of what's in your medicine cabinet right now. 
or you know if you're talking about part b you know what a doctor can administer to you uh drugs that you can receive in a clinical setting in the hospital monoclonal antibodies the entire class of monoclonal antibodies that's a whole new class and you can layer successive waves of innovation on top of this so that's been transformational and yet in that same time frame although what we all spend on prescription drugs has grown by a factor of 10 or so seems like a lot but it's still less than 10% of the total healthcare spend in the United States At the same time you have a situation where well over the last decade if i remember my numbers right um, i have to glance at my notes <laughs> uh, i think the fda over the last decade cedar classifies something like 350 new drugs that are innovative that's a pretty extraordinary number a very significant number of those are for rare diseases and since the original orphan drug act was approved which is you know 35 years or so ago there's something like 800 approved orphan drugs covering over 500 uh, individual molecules so i i think that the whole discussion of pricing first needs to recognize that in many, many profound respects, we've had an innovation engine in this country, largely in this country, not only, but largely in this country, that has exerted a transformational impact on the caliber of care. Global caliber of care. You mentioned at the, in my intro, I introduced the uh, first combination HIV therapies in the mid-90s. Before that, HIV was a death sentence. You could not have a more bifurcated relationship between purchasing power and prevalence than you got in HIV. 90% of the patients were in countries that couldn't afford the products. That's necessarily, it's an extreme example of a situation where the innovative drugs can only come from and can only be paid for in one place. Right. And so your choice is, do you want to innovate and pay for the drugs? Or would you rather not have the drugs? And it seems like a rather self-defeating approach to say, well, because they pay less, nobody can have them. Yeah, we're going to kill the entire economy on it. What's, what's interesting as well about the proposal, and, and in full disclosure, we're presenting some original research that, and you're on the panel tomorrow, there was an ecosystem of 118 biotechs that those 10 companies had invested in, and there were 10 products that had emerged from 10 companies out of that 118. So 108 haven't put a product up, 10 have. There was a total ecosystem investment of $45 billion into those 10 companies that came out with products. $39 billion, roughly 80% of that investment, came from those companies that are currently going to be impacted by Medicare Part B. So the largest selling, most innovative drugs are funding this entire ecosystem and the next generation drugs that are coming up. Why is this being missed in the general discussion that it's not just about what you pay now, it's about funding the whole ecosystem around this and the next generation comes up? First of all, the vast majority of people, including policymakers, I don't think recognize how successful this engine has been. You kind of take it for granted. Sure. You kind of hope that when you go to the doctor with your disease, that it's just going to be there. There are adequate medicines sure. there to treat it. And increasingly, that's so. But that expectation that the, there's this pipeline of innovation that'll continue, I think, tends to get taken for granted. And I don't think people appreciate 
when you juxtapose this kind of mysterious, behind-the-curtain, fairly sophisticated and specialized industry with we have a new curative gene therapy we're going to introduce 50% discount against its benchmark value it's only going to cost 2 million bucks <laughs> the optics of that you know Are, you yeah, don't it, it's it's tough to get beyond that price tag in fact i think it's a red herring for most of the industry and i think that because it's easy to oversimplify the policy and the political dimension, it does get oversimplified. And I think it's aggravated by a couple of kick-me-style uh, <laughs> factors. So the Martin Shkreli's of the world. Right. You know, when somebody just takes an egregious approach to pricing, completely unjustified, just because they can. The EpiPen scenario as well. The EpiPen scenario is another one. That's what I refer to as, you know, don't put on the kick me sign. <laughs> the other factor that I don't think is helpful is, you know, just taking gratuitous and somewhat excessive price hikes on existing drugs. Uh, you know, I'm a free market person, so I don't like to say you can't do it. If, if you're not innovating and paying for innovation, it's a less tenable position to say, well, we're going to milk <laughs> right. our, our current products uh, as a substitute. I, I guess the, the, uh, the ancillary part of that argument, though, is that any other p- company can come in with a product and compete with that. Yeah. So even if the price is egregious, again, a lot of people thought Savaldi was completely ridiculous at $84,000. Although if you ran the health economic value chain out and looked at liver transplants, you were looking at over a quarter million dollar of cost. So actually it was good value. Yeah. But the fact is people still had sticker shock on that $84,000, even though you can make logical arguments. However, three years later, AbbVie comes out with their combo therapy, and the price immediately drops you know, by 50%. Now we're at $40,000. So co- yeah. the competitive aspects of the market do have a tendency to self-regulate. So I'm glad you said that. If you were to provide as, uh, as simple a paradigm as you could for what has made this country's pharma pipeline as successful as it has been. I'll say pharma as sort of a proxy for for biotech. I think it's the exploding exponential body of biological discovery for a start. I think it's because we made some actually fairly smart and effective policy decisions a long time ago by Dole and the Orphan Drug Act amongst them. You know, there'll be plenty of people out there who will take an uh, are taking. A, aggressive <laughs> issue with that. But those have led to, there's an economic engine there paired with a competitive character to, to an open marketplace that I think is, uh, it's not perfect, but it has been profoundly productive. So I think that a focus, instead of saying, hey, look, we're going to just take a sledgehammer to this and we'll fix what we think is a problem with access by creating new problems. Sure. I think recognizing that a lot of this treatment is going towards now a set of patient populations that are smaller, more specialized. You have uh, performance criteria for pricing that are new to this industry, new to payers, where you just need, you're going to need new paradigms. You can't really do empiric prescribing anymore. Right. Uh, where everybody will try it with everybody and see, see what, what it, happens. See what how much of it works, and we'll price accordingly. I think we'll need more tailored for purpose pricing models that focus on risk over time, performance uncertainty, 
and you know just a, a different approach to if I have a one-time cure, do I get paid up front just one time? You had mentioned earlier the new gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy that's come in at $2 million. Now, arguably, if you don't give this drug, you're going to pay $5 million over the lifetime of the patient. Okay, but that's over the lifetime of the patient. From your perspective as an investor, what would you like to see as an alternative payment model in that scenario? There's a ticking clock. The person who invented it only has 11, 12 years to get that money back. It's an orphan indication. What, what are some ways that you think could work? Well, there's an analogy with monetizing royalty streams. Mm-hmm. So most deals are back-ended. And what will frequently happen is once the royalty stream becomes sufficiently predictable, there are entities out there that will buy your royalty stream. The long tail theory. They'll buy the annuity yeah. uh, and pay you a lump sum. And so I think there's, there could be something analogous in therapeutics where you say, hey, look, if I've got a one-time treatment where the outcome, we know what the clinical data tells us, but you know we did it in 25 patients. Yeah, in six months. Yeah, <laughs> in six months. <laughs> yeah. So let's take, I'm not doing Novartis's pricing for them. Of course not. But I've seen them refer in their public statements to stage pricing. So I think they're looking at something that says, you know, now that you've got the sticker shock and we've set your expectations accordingly, you only have to pay us 500000 a year right. for, you know, four years or something like that. So a combination of stretching the payments and challenging though it may be, linking that to the true risk. You know, one of the things that I certainly think about, and if you look at most of these new agents that are coming to market now, certainly some of the cell-based therapies, the CAR-Ts, their immediate market performance is rather fitful. And you could look at that and say, well, that kind of translates. Look, these products are transforming every sector of the industry from soup to nuts, research all the way through commercialization and, and manufacturing and distribution. And the effect that I think has on market risk and post-launch risk is real for the companies. But by the same token, if you don't have clinical data that you feel and that payers and patients can feel is really predictive of a longer-term response, I don't think the industry is going to be allowed to get away with saying, that's okay, you still have to pay us up front and take that part of the risk away. And that's what we've been seeing in CAR-T. It has been underperforming in sales. Yeah. But what you also see then in some of the work we've done with the Dutch government is we see that CAR-T is only often being used in the patients that are refractory or non-responsive and aren't eligible or they can't get a bone marrow transplant. So the doctor's going, well, heck, we can't treat them. Let's give them CAR-T. And then, wait a minute, ooh, that's not the response we (laughs) expected. Again, I think that's normal, but I think what you're also seeing then is that some of the clinical studies don't necessarily end up reflecting what's actually happening in practice. And that leads to a certain cynicism among certain pairs, which I understand. So would you say then the current efficacy-based system might not be the best for some of these high-ticketed items? We need to go to more of an effectiveness model? Well, your approval criteria are central to the economics that attract investment and the whole economic engine. So I'm loathe to attenuate what I think has been an evolving and increasingly effective regulatory environment to adapt to these new technologies and say, how can we find the right balance between patient benefit and access? As transformational as many of these products are, I think that 
a moment ago, I alluded to the fact that I, I believe that they're transformational right across the entire spectrum of the industry. Sure. And when I say industry, I'm not just talking about investors and companies. I'm talking about Doctors, payers. treatment, payers, patients. The you know, this is, this is society's stake in healthcare and well-being. So I think we're going to have to invent our way through to new paradigms that more effectively address this sort of thing. And those models, you know, just like personalized medicine is starting to sort more and more specific treatment modalities towards smaller and smaller patient groups, I think the same thing may necessarily occur uh, when it comes to payment models. You have to cut the cloth to suit the, the circumstances. Having said that, I just saw at an earlier session a statistic that said, hey, look, emerging biopharma is contributing almost three quarters of the development pipeline, but they actually take longer to get a product to market. It's like 17 years or something. From patent disclosure, (laughs) it's a fairly significant amount of that. And and then you've only got five, six years on the back end to try and get your ROI. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, as a general principle, if you can find effective ways of shortening that time frame, I think that benefits all parties concerned. I think we're always likely to have a sensitivity about putting a price on somebody's health. I just think that's going to be an inescapable fact. People always say they'll have sticker shock. Quick aside, I I was general manager for Glaxo New Zealand at the point in time when the New Zealand government was completely revamping their pharmaceutical pricing approach. And the minister of health said to me at one point, he said, what I would dearly love to do is to have on the label of the pill bottle when the patient gets it, it says, we paid this, you paid this, <laughs> which is substantially less. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's just a reality. But there's also this expectation, you know, we're a species, our, our approach to uh, selection pressure is to think our way around it, right? Right. And so that's what medicine is. It's a way of, uh, as individuals, where we can evade or at least defer selection pressure way past the end of our reproductive age. Let's say Anthony Quinn aside. <laughs> Anthony Quinn, yes. Uh, at least we're normal people like I, uh, like me, uh, are concerned. But um, the one point about political sensitivity is a pessimistic point. And I think it's always going to be a political football. But I think the optimistic point is I don't think, at least in our society, that people are going to accept a trade-off that says, well, you know what? We'll trade more access for less innovation. Sure. So to me, I have felt this way since my HIV days. If you've got an innovative product and not all patients can benefit from it, you should view that as a business problem. Yeah. You should want as many patients, and I think most people do, they want as many patients as possible to benefit from it. That, you know, is only sort of an opening for a, a much more difficult discussion from a payment and policy perspective, but I think it's something that the industry needs to apply itself more diligently to, to try and at least better mitigate the sensitivities around access. I saw some additional statistics that said, I think this was maybe from the Kaiser Foundation, said, look, 85% of prescriptions in the U.S. are generic. 75% of the dollar value of the pharmaceutical market is from branded products. Right. Which sounds to me, it actually sounds like it, it sort of conforms to how you would potentially design an economy or an economic model that would focus on 
product innovation. But the troubling one was they had found uh, at least the self-reported percentage of patients who said they had trouble affording their products, despite the 85% generic, was 24%. And so I think that's certainly problematic. Do you see that as one of our biggest challenges over the next five years? America's leading in innovation. We're dominating the sector. 70% of all mature biotech assets are now coming and landing in the United States, but yet we need to fund it. I think the money goes where the money can be productive sure, and get rewarded. So to me, that's almost a validation that the model works. Right. I do feel, and you know, this covers uh, all my time in working in the international industry, there's a long-established pattern where other countries, Australia, uses reference pricing to approve the minimum possible price. And so I think you can categorically say that the U.S. pays more than its fair share for the innovation and other countries pay less. If you could redesign it from some celestial level, <laughs> you would say, okay, let's let the U.S. pay less, not dramatically less, but less, and at least other developed countries should pay more. But this is like NATO yeah. uh, and defense spending, right? What you shouldn't say is we're just going to categorically cut the legs out from the innovative part of the equation. And then everything else is just going to magically sort itself out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I saw one public statement uh, from Alex Azar saying, you know, we'll jawbone these other governments to pay more. Good luck with that. Yeah, particularly when you just had a bunch of populists elected in Europe. Yeah, and a lot of these countries, you know, have as long-standing a pharmaceutical tradition uh, as we do. It's hard to change those structural elements. I just think that we ought to take exceptional care, and there's not a lot of careful conversation in the policy discussion right now. I know from experience in the industry in big pharma, If Greece would tell us, well, you know, this is your price, and it was going to drag our prices down elsewhere, we would not launch in Greece. Which is what traditionally has happened. Yeah. One last question for you. What do you see from Papa's Capital's standpoint? What do you think are the real emerging opportunities? Well, I alluded before to the exponential increase in biological discovery. I think this is a bit of an extrapolation to my layman's comments about selection pressure. I think what we're in the process of doing is changing the social paradigm where, you know, instead of lingering for 20 years, being unproductive and suffering from a chronic condition as a general population, we are going to have the opportunity, if we can manage it properly, where you can go out quickly and you can stay productive pretty much up till the time you go out. So I have a very simple concept here. It's not a direct answer in terms of <laughs> this is the technologies you should watch. But, not looking for any hot leads. <laughs> uh, but as a general theme, I like to say, and I never hear politicians say this, you know what? Sick people and dead people are not economically productive. So if you're thinking in terms of building societal wealth as opposed to societal cost, If we can keep people healthy and active and productive, I don't want to sit on a beach in my golden years. i got to work. Well, a beach would be okay, wouldn't it? Well, I'd like to be able to afford a vacation. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I, I think that there is an opportunity here to kind of continue changing the lifespan paradigm for, at least for some of our species, where you can 
live longer, stay productive longer. And there'll be costs associated with that, but most of the economic development that has occurred since the Industrial Revolution has been built on investment that translated into exponential new sources of wealth. And I think that's what healthcare can do. That's great, Peter. Thank you very much for your time. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it.